This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we ring in the new year of this new decade with the power of 2020 hours for the making, this week we welcome gardener, naturalist, educator, husband, and lily lover, Jojo Clark. Born and raised in Vallejo, California, to a garden-loving mother, Jojo is a naturalist working on interpretation, public engagement and education, and nearly equal amounts of paperwork for the Napa County Open Space District, taking him to both state and county parks in coastal Northern California. He joins us today from his home garden to share more about his garden life journey and his abiding love for the lilies. Welcome, Jojo. I'm super excited to be part of your podcast. I'm so grateful. (laughs) So before we get into your fieldwork, go back a little bit. Tell me about your earliest influences that led you to be this kind of person. Well, I naturally, I'm sorry, I garden at home. And I have to thank my mom for that. I was born in Vallejo, California, and my childhood was pretty awesome. I had an opportunity to be outside a lot. And with that, it did come with the chores. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we had a, a garden in the back of our yard, and it had all these vegetables that I loved. I mean, I love eating. I just love eating. But the fruit that she, she grew um, was amazing. And my younger brother, he actually took on a lot of the hard work and kind of uh, sort of guided the garden. For me, I was more into not the things that I could eat, but the things that attracted me through my eyes, through that um, that sense, you know, mm-hmm. and the smell. And so um, she did have some irises that were in the front yard. I didn't really know that they were native. Uh, <laughs> but later on, as I kind of grew into, you know, my my interest of native plants of California, they were native. Um, they were Douglas iris, mm-hmm. uh, pink version. Mm-hmm. And so that developed this hunger, I guess, you know, yeah. Talk about how being a naturalist and being a gardener both evolved in you as you headed toward college. And and did you incorporate those into what you studied at college? Talk about that. Um, actually, I went to the JC in uh, Fairfield in Solano Community College. And I knew that I wanted to study bio. At the time, I loved um, anything that was living in the water. So I wanted to be a marine biologist. And I loved the bay, right? And then after about two or three semesters, um, I had opportunity to go to Africa, South Africa. And (laughs) I loved it. It was amazing. It was the Mediterranean climate. It was just beautiful. And also, I loved language. So the people that I interacted down there, they knew at least four or five languages. And so when I came back to California, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to learn a language. And I thought French would be the best suit for me because I really wanted to go back to Africa. And I love Celine Dion, right? So um, (laughs) I really did. And I still do. So that was the the, sort of the the foundation, I guess, of that for my college career. Um, Gardening kind of took a back, uh, took the back seat. 
at that time yeah. because I was just going back and forth from class. I didn't really, at the time it was really hard. I thought to garden with um, some of the things that were in my mind uh, that I wanted to do. So, you know. <laughs> okay. So I want to pause. I, I want to go back a little bit to the South Africa experience. Was that just random or, or did you choose to go there as a foreign study? And were you looking at plants while you're there? Because of course, it's like one of yeah. the great plant bucket list destinations on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I went there because I was in a singing uh, group. And so we toured for about two weeks. <laughs> I, I So I grew up very... Um, not religious a little bit. I, I went to church every Sunday, you know, and we sang a lot. So we had opportunity to go to South Africa to sing. And I didn't even know, you know, about all the <laughs> wonders of uh, the botanical wonders in South Africa, you know, the succulents and all the cool bulbs right. down there. So what I was seeing down there, I, I knew it was gorgeous and beautiful and was amazed by it, but I, I didn't really know. I was 19 years old right. at the time. <laughs> um, but I was singing a lot. So I was, you know, getting my, my sing on. So I didn't. <laughs> that is such a great story. Isn't and that I, really interesting? Yeah. It is. So you go to South Africa, you have this kind of a little bit of an earth life-changing experience. You come back to school, you you take up French. Yeah, I took up French, yeah. um, and I, I absolutely loved it. I, that's that's a, a language still in my heart that I, you know, I think about and, and use sometimes because I'm in, I'm in the wine country, you know. So you, would, I would encounter um, people from francophonic countries. Um, the reason why I did chose to, to study French was because I wanted to be, um, I wanted to work with the Peace Corps in Africa. And um, at the time, there was just these two passions in my heart, and I didn't know how to choose correctly. I don't want to say choose correctly, but where to go. Like, should I study science or should I just study just French or foreign language? Um, when I transferred from Solano Community College, um, I went to Sonoma State, and I was there for about a good uh, two semesters. The third semester, um, unfortunately, I had a stroke, and so I lost, <laughs> I lost everything. I kind of, I didn't, uh, I couldn't read anymore, or you know, talk English or French, and I was studying a little bit of Spanish at the time, but I, I totally lost all that. Yeah, it was almost like a reset, and the only two things that were still like when I when I woke up after the stroke was my love of outdoors and music, like, wow. <laughs> if that makes sense, you know. Um, yeah. That is a powerful story. And the fact that those two things were so, like, part of your cellular makeup that they stuck yeah. with you is so powerful, JoJo. Wow. I may back up just a little bit because yeah. there's, a, there's a part that, um, that you kind of, you'll get a literal on into the story. So when I was really young, about like five years old, my uncle um, lives, he li still lives in Cordelia um, near uh, Fairfield. Mm -hmm. It was a park called Rockville Park. And as a kid, he would take us there 
you know, constantly. And that's where I was introduced uh, to Oaks. I think Oaks was sort of like the gateway for me for California native plants. Now we're going to fast forward just a little bit, right, right after the, the stroke. So when I woke up, I couldn't talk at all. I, I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't articulate to my parents or to my friends or family who were, who came to visit me. Um, mm-hmm. But at night, um, <laughs> it's so crazy. I would sleep and I would be in an Oak Woodland setting and everything was peaceful. Everything was, you know, exactly intact to the things that I loved and remembered sort of at that time. And so I think um, hopefully that makes sense, but <laughs> that's how um, it's still really in me, you know? Yeah. Wow. So hopefully that was a part of the, the question. <laughs> and so, so this, this being in the Oak Woodland setting, this was sort of a, a visual and sensual, sensual, sensory kind of memory or, or image that you held in your, in your dreams that were sort of part of your recovery as you see it? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That did help me a lot. Um, I would have to go to therapy classes and they would have to, uh, uh, show me photos of different types of images, like a balloon or a girl or something like that. And I really couldn't pinpoint what it was, but I knew what it was you know, in my, in my mind. Right. When there was ever a tree or when there was a flower, I was like, Oh, I know what that is. And sometimes French would come first and then English would come later on. But yeah, that's those, um, that whole natural world is, it's really interesting how it's, it's locked in my, my brain at that time. And it still is. And so how many years or, or months or what was the time period of, I'm guessing both occupational therapy and physical therapy to, to get you back to, to where you had been. Um, how long was that before you could take up schooling again, Jojo? Yeah. So the timeline was, it was in January of 2012 and it was, uh, the day before class started, that's when I had the stroke. And so I was in the hospital for about two weeks. And then, um, for the, probably the middle of uh, February, I got better. I was released. And so I would go back to the hospital for more therapy classes every, every day until, May. And so I was, the, the recovery was pretty, pretty fast. And I probably have to think my age um, at the time, you know, and right after that, I went right back to work. I was, while going to school, I was working at um, Alliance Redwoods in Occidental, Sonoma. And so I got a chance to leave home, you know, and, um, move there. <laughs> My mom was really nervous because, you know, she it happened so fast. I was determined to just go back into, you know, the forest. And that is exactly where the lilies came into play. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so talk, yeah. So talk about that. So uh, for, for listeners, um, Jojo's feed on Instagram is called Lily Boy Joy. Yeah. And he posts all kinds of things. You post beautiful things, but it is your like incredible like love for and um 
not just the pictures, but the words as well for finding and meeting different species, different specimens of lilies throughout the state of California uh, that really are, it just floors me every time, Jojo. It it truly does to me (laughs) when I'm in in its presence as well. Um, I I love that flower, that that species, um, and all, all types of native plants as well. But I was introduced to that plant um, through a book. Um, a nurse was leaving the camp site. She was she lived there for about thirty years, and she was going to move. And she was giving all of her books, you know, to people who were interested in. And one of those books was the flora of the redwood area. And on the back of the cover of the book was this uh, leopard lily. And I was just like, really? There's there's lilies here in California? Like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know at the time, you know. And I was basically flabbergasted by that. Um, and I tried to look for them on the property, and I couldn't find them at all. So I kind of gave up on it. Um, and uh, a year later, I was walking near a creek and I saw one and I, I literally just almost fainted. Like (laughs) it was amazing. I was super happy and super excited to see it. I thought they were all extinct at the time because that's how my mind was working. I didn't really know Mm -hmm. um, if if they were still here, you know? Um, And then that led me into this whole world really did um, into uh, those areas where they're found and protecting them as well. Like this year, two years um, after the fire in mm-hmm. um, Sonoma and Napa counties, they're coming up like crazy and being underneath them. Some of them are, you know, uh, six to nine feet tall, the ones that I've experienced and have like 40 flowers. Right. It is really a humbling experience. It really is. And the fragrance that meets you on the trails before you see them. It, it really is a, a spiritual, I, I guess, uh, um, encounter. <laughs> yeah. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. This week, naturalist Jojo Clark is joining us to share his love of native plants, of time outdoors, and especially of his love for the native lilies of California. We'll be back for more with Jojo after a break. there's one thing that I hope we all take from this conversation with Jojo Clark, it's this. Take time. Make time to really and truly and fully love what you love. Love what you find beautiful, healing, expanding, and meaningful in your garden and on your trails on this generous planet of ours. If you love lilies, then by all means, fully love them. If you love your vegetable garden, your topiary, bonsai, fragrant roses, or taking children or other adults on nature walks through the woods, along streams, pointing out the diversity and wonder of mushrooms, leaves, seed forms. If you love cooking with your garden bounty or crafting with gourds, whatever it is, give yourself time for it. There's never a better time than right now, today, where you are, where the world is. Let your great loves meet up. 
there's healing and growing to be done right there. Now back to our conversation with Jojo Clark. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with naturalist Jojo Clark, sharing with us his garden life journey. In the first segment of our conversation, Jojo shared how at the age of 22, in January of 2012, he suffered a stroke while in college, majoring in French and minoring in biology. He lost everything. His words, his memories, his ability to move. During his recovery, he met the Lilly family in California for the first time, and he found a great deal of healing in the natural communities formed by some of our most charismatic trees, coast and giant redwood forests, oak woodlands, ponderosa pine and dug fir forests, along with their associated soils, climates, and other plants, including the geophytic lilies. As we come back, Jojo is talking about his interest in the diversity of these forests, including their different lily populations. When you're in the the redwood forest, the coastal redwood forest, you usually find things that handle a lot lot more shade. Uh, Ferns, for example, or... Um, the Calypso babosa, the fairy um, prairie slipper, yeah. things like that. And that for me, and those areas would be the lilies. Um, but the lilies actually do go out in areas, so you would find them in the Sierras as well. Um, not so much in the Oak Woodlands, but in the, the Chaparral areas, really hot areas, you'll find those there. So you will find these little cool geophytes. Uh, that could be a bulb. Um, a rhizome or a tuber, all those things that have a, um, a structure that holds all their juice, you know, uh, that that they grow from, um, that comes from. Okay, so now let's go straight to the lilies. I know you love ferns and, and yeah. you know, all the associated flora, but um, lily, of course, is a whole family of plants, and it's also a genus, and it's also got many species across the world. It's it's a big group. I think, um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we have 21 species and subspecies yeah, that are native to the correct. state of California. Yeah. yeah. And, and they... They range in their uh, – because they are a geophyte uh, and they hold all of their storage capacity underground, they're incredibly resilient and adaptable to different environments, right? That's very true. Uh, for example, um, Lilium rubescens, um, the common name would be uh, redwood lily. Mm-hmm. Um, they are found in the redwood forest and they're also found in chaparral areas, so they're they're also called the chaparral lily, and they are not found near water. Usually, when you think of a lily, you think of a stream, ferns, and a lily that you know mm-hmm. you'll see. Yeah. But there is another type that we, I call them the dryland lilies, and they live in an, um, in an area where they're found. Um, their bulbs are found probably six. Um, inches deep down in the ground, wow. covered, you know, by either clay that has a lot of drainage that goes through. And it's just amazing to see that happen. I don't know if you 
ever encounter those. But if you do, you're just like, where in the world? How do they do this? Right, right. <laughs> because the bulb is a fleshy bulb. It doesn't have any skin around it. Like if you go to like Costco or, you know, a store and you'll see a, a bag of uh, bulbs and they do have this coat around it mm-hmm. for the lily species of California, they, they, they don't have that at all, which is amazing. Um, that's why I, I actually am more <laughs> excited about learning more about that as well and how they endure such harsh environments. Right. Because you see that, like you think of a, you know, that papery flesh coming off of a daffodil, right? And it's protective. Yeah. Yeah. But these lilies are, they seem so exposed and vulnerable when you, when you can hold them in your hand or you see them in person like that. And how, how are they able to hold on for long, hot summers or, you know, cold, cold winters? Or how do they not get eaten or nicked or diseased? Or But they are, they have this incredible strength with their vulnerability. Usually it's the, the depth that they're mm-hmm. at, especially for the um, the dry lilies, um, like a Humboldt lily that you'll find in the Sierras, or there's a, a subspecies down in Southern California. They're really deep down in the earth, and there's installation around that area, which to create that in the garden is pretty hard to do. Mm-hmm. It really is. But um, sometimes in the, in the Sierras, there's snow that you know is melted down, and it goes down into the ground, and it kind of seals a little bit of the bulb. In Southern California as well, there is irrigation underneath the earth that kind of protects it from that hot sun. But they do. It's so interesting. They do need that that hotness, which is interesting. Um, they can be in full sun, and it's just really interesting. Um, they are also a favorite treat for different animals. I mean, gophers <laughs> and wolves, that is mm-hmm. like, you know, ice cream. It really is, um, especially for um, deer as well. Um, they're mainly protected by uh, shrubs, you know, things that sort of protect them. You can find populations where there, there could be, you know, um, like a spice bush, you know, around a creek and there's lilies that grow under underneath it. It's very beautiful um, scenery, but that's the way how they can sort of survive in those areas. Um, and I, I would I, I would like to mention um, the, the Native American tribes as well, that indigenous people, they use that bulb for, for food as well. Um, and not as much as a potato, but more like um, uh, it's very, very spicy. Um, like garlic um, or an onion, hmm. you know, to put in, yeah, for more seasoning. So they would, they would, you know, protect the bulb as well, um, meaning that um, they would um, use it on lifted up and take some of the the scales off of it as well, put it back in the ground, you know, and harvest it as well. So and so. The Native American peoples of California would use all lily bulbs, or were there specific that were particularly good edibles? Um, from my knowledge, in front of red, all of them were used. Okay, and mm-hmm. so and. That's so interesting that they are spicy. I would never think they were spicy. And, of course, they are a a bulb or a geophyte like the alliums, but they don't have – they have that gorgeous scent to the flowers, most of them. But but they don't have – 
um, a scent to like the stem that I'm aware of, like when you cut one or, or one is broken. Exactly. And so yeah. that spiciness seems so surprising. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, 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 I grow my own, but I, I don't really eat them. Um, I've, uh, uh, have talked to some, uh, um, people who have used the, the bulb for demonstration, mm-hmm. um, in Native American uh, cuisines, um, mainly the Polo, Pomo and the, the Wapo tribe here, yep. um, which we do have um, uh, a great exhibits. We do have those wonderful things that we can, you know, learn from. But that's how I, I got to experience that. <laughs> and do you know, like I'm thinking of that fleshy bulb and I'm thinking of how white it is. And so it yes. probably doesn't have the same level of uh you know, like tannins that some bulbs or seeds will have that have a darker yeah. coating. How are they the kind of thing that you have to prepare in order for them to be edible or are they edible right from the the, the rawness? And, and I ask this mostly because if we should issue a warning about not going out and just <laughs> eating your lily bulbs, we should do it right yeah. now, Jojo. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can eat them uh, cooked or uh, raw. Okay. Uh, at both way, at both ways, um, and I would have to give a warning out there because I wouldn't necessarily like go out and look for them. The main reason I I, I would uh, have this warning is because they're uncommon in California or pretty rare. I would say half of, half of the species um, is you know on um, the rare plant um, uh, rank, usually one one to four. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I would just go to, you know, Trader Joe's and get, you know, garlic or, or uh, uh, onions, you know, so that whole way. <laughs> well, and I think that you're noting that you grow them at home and you still yes. don't eat them is no, I- a, an important caveat because one, it is illegal to harvest anything like this in, in the wild without a permit and especially on uh, public or government owned or managed land. And it's just never a good idea to eat something that you've collected in the wild that you don't know an incredible amount about. And um, and as you say, most of these are um, listed as rare or endangered. And so it is absolutely unethical to collect in the wild. Um, yeah. Growing at home from seed, growing at home from someone else's um, you know, uh, dividing them by the scales, as you were mentioning, the indigenous peoples of California did in what is a slightly bigger version of gardening is yeah. that, you know, these these bulb collection, whether it's lilies or camas or uh, the alliums, were all managed and harvested and then re replanted, divided like we do Um by, you know, taking the big bulb out, pulling off the baby pups and little bulblets, and then redistributing them so that the populations would increase, not decrease through harvest, right? That's exactly true. That's right. And if you uh, read a little bit of the uh, um, historical records of when the Spanish came over, you would see, you know, through their words, the color of the fields. Of California, and I'm also guessing that there were a lot of lilies as well mm-hmm. that they've witnessed, um, and I, I just could imagine. Um, and that's where I come into play with my work as well. So I do find populations uh, on trails, you know, and I document them, and I, you know, create 
um, an awareness or, you know, uh, if a trail needs to be built this way or a trail needs to be going that way, we kind of divert it so, um, you know, we could leave the lilies alone or either, um, you know, protect them if they're near a trail, we'll have to remove them and put them in another place, you know. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Jojo Clark is a naturalist working with the Napa County Open Space District. He has a deep love of the native lilies of California as plants of great beauty and strength. We'll be right back for more about them after the break. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week. Jojo is going to talk more about this at the end of our conversation, but I wanted to offer out this one word for you to consider as we embark on this newest, freshest, most hopeful of years. And that word is presence. This is among the greatest gifts offered out to us, demanded in fact, in that tough love of a mother kind of way, by our garden and nature an ever-deepening literacy into both. That gift being offered is presence. Without true presence in these spaces, we miss everything. We miss what's in bloom, what's needing to be done and when. We're missing what the season is showing us, telling us. We're missing the sound and pacing of our own breath in and out, oxygenating us. We're missing our own blood pumping and hearts beating and the birds calling simultaneously. We're missing the wind rustling the grasses and leaves. Really being in relationship with our gardens requires presence. And the presence that we learn and practice there can and does, I think, inform and improve our presence everywhere, in our other work, in our other relationships. It's worth noting, I think, and it's worth being as deliberate as we possibly can with it and in appreciation of it. As you walk to your compost, as you shovel snow, as you rake leaves, prune your dormant fruit trees and your vines and your roses in preparation for the first flush of spring, be present and see what grows from there, mentally, physically, emotionally, creatively see what grows. Now, back to our conversation with Jojo Clark on his great love of the presence of lilies in his life. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with naturalist Jojo Clark, sharing with us his garden life journey. He's walked us through the anatomy and growth habits of the native lilies of California. As we come back, he's sharing with us how he grows them in his garden and the importance of being really present in the presence of these gems of the natural world when and where we meet them. The diversity in California is remarkable, and you are a remarkable recorder of this diversity. Um, talk about the ones that you have seen. Have you seen all 21? 
Um, I I have I have seen all twenty one. Well some, done, you. <laughs> yeah, some some in the garden and some in the wild, and I mean honestly, it's almost like meeting, um, like your best friend or, <laughs> mm-hmm. or 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 somebody that you've you know or you admire a lot. Um, this year I got to. Uh, travel up to Humboldt County, Del Norte County as well with um, my friends, botanist friends, Lynn. And uh, gosh, we, uh, it was just so cool to um, go around, even right off the the road. Usually they're off the road um, due to the disturbance of that habitat, which is perfect for them because it's great drainage. Um, We saw Lilium um, columbianum, uh, Columbia lily, uh, a lot of uh, lily and partilinums, which are the leopard lilies. The leopard lilies have a complex all all to themselves, which is so amazing. Uh, you can find at least four or five different types of uh, lily and partilinum subspecies there. And lilium uh, occidental, the western lily, which is a really rare one, which um, is such a beautiful uh uh, lily, which is a, a scarlet red and has a green star in the middle of it. Mm. It's amazing. It's it's just great. And um, it, it, I, w- I would keep on going on and on, but it is something that you have to witness to go and see them. And um, it, it does bring awareness of uh, not just of the lilies, but the surrounding area around it too. I mean, the forest and the other things that you you would see, like the, I'm I'm in love with ferns right now because you usually see ferns with lilies and and you know and it's just amazing. So <laughs> you have a, a recent Instagram post that um, reads, "My heart beats to the colors of pinks, purples, and reds. My senses are intoxicated by the fragrance that they adorn to perfection." These lilies are my friends. They approve of my adorations towards them, which I just loved, Jojo. And it gets to the incredible range of colors that these lilies display, which is not the case with all flower groups, right? But there's the like pure, pure white ones. And then there are the pale pink and then the bright pink and the purples and the oranges and the spotted. And and they do have this fantastic array of markings and stripes and dots. Uh, Oh, uh, they're crazy beautiful. It it really is. It's just one of those things where if you witness it in person or just the photos as well, hopefully I capture it perfectly in the photos but i mean it, it can go on and on the colors the, the variations um and they can hybridize with each other all of them can and so when you find those uh say for example a um a leopard lily which is usually um uh, orange and, and and red and mix it with um the kellogg kelloggyized lily um, and that usually is uh, a pink, you know, sometimes it'd be white. And if you find those two together, you could, f- the, the colors are endless sometimes. And it's just amazing. And I'm not the only person who loves the ladies and, you know, what they, you know, bring to their world. Um, I'm thinking of uh, some uh, gardeners over in Europe. Um, uh a late um, gardener named uh, Drake uh, Drake Foss, 
and he hybridized uh, lilies um, in the late 70s and early 80s. And he, you know, uh, had a whole world of different types of uh, creations that he made. And mainly why there's a lot of uh, California lilies in Europe is because of um, Carl Purdy. I don't know if you've heard him, but friends with Luther Burbank, um, at late 1800s and the early 20th century, um, he was the person who um, would go out and uh, 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 collect lilies, not just lilies, but, you know, um, fritillarias, calicordises, all the different types of geophytes and sell them around the world. And so uh, today, um, there are still species over there in Europe, and there's a society over there that have used the lilies and um, to make different types of hybrids and creations over there. So it's really interesting. You'll see different types of um, colors and some that have fragrance that that usually don't. It's just crazy. So, <laughs> hmm. so tell us about your garden. How how big is it, and how many and how many lilies are you growing there? Yeah, I my garden is pretty small. Um, I live in Calistoga, so it's pretty warm in the summertime, and it could be pretty cold in the wintertime. So um, I have about at least, uh, golly, um, about 10, 10 to 15. Um, and I usually get my lilies from plant cells or from seed collection that I have purchased either through um, the lily um, society, mm-hmm. um, international lily society. And um, the majority are in pots, which my, my wife is not really happy about. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like pots everywhere, right? <laughs> which is, is so funny. I think that that's, that's cool. But the reason why they're in pots is because um, my um, the soil that I have is not um, fast, uh, it doesn't have uh, the best drainage. And that's the, uh, the most important key for lilies, um, that you have to have perfect drainage. And I can create that through a container or a, um, a pot. So the lilies that I, I, I do um, garden with are the lily partilinum, which is the easiest one, I would say. And, and I would have to kind of throw that out there because um, lilies are nece- not necessarily for the beginner um, gardener. <laughs> they are very temperamental. But that's what I love about them because um, it's almost like I'm raising up a child a little bit, if that makes sense, because um, I have to monitor monitor them, you know, how much water they get, especially after the rain stops um, from seed until they flower, which is amazing uh, reward if you if you have the opportunity to do that. Growing things from seeds alone, actually, you know, from or an acorn, you know, or uh, uh, mazzanitas, anything like that, you know. So and it's so, hard. okay, so it is hard, and it takes time. Yeah. Tell us about. Uh, did you have you grown a partilinum from seed? Yes. Yeah. So talk um, about that process. Like how? How? What did you prepare uh, the the soil bed with? Yes. Describe. Yeah. Describe how, the whole the whole process because it's it's a couple years, right? It usually takes about. Uh, three to four years, sometimes right. five years. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. So if you think of it that way, you got to be really committed and don't forget about them. Right. So um, I usually so if, if one of my um, lilies has been pollinated and, and you know, um, produces fruit, I usually um, uh, capture the, the seeds when the seed is ripened. I put it in the refrigerator or the freezer until I'm ready, you know, to, to freeze the seed because the seed is still vital. I have a medium of soil, of potting soil, sand, and lava rock, a clean lava rock um, that allows drainage. And I put the seeds either sometimes on top or underneath a little bit of the soil. Both of those work in the fall, right? And I, once the rain starts, I'm I'm gone. I'm watching Netflix. I'm you know I'm you know it's like they can handle that portion. When the rain stops though, um, usually around May, um, then that's when I'm out there watering um, the seedlings for about you know two two weeks um, and let them dry and then water them back. And the tricky part is in the summertime. So usually. For um, wetland lilies, which the wetland lilies are, the part of linums, the lilies that you would find near the creek you mm-hmm. know, or on a, a moist meadow, um, they can, you know, be watered um, usually um, you know, once a week. For the dryland lilies, um, once the summer uh, starts and the rain is done, I don't water them Um and, you know, just once a month. So for seedling, I have to be very careful because they're very young and I have to monitor them sometimes. And so you just have to go with your gut, what you're seeing, you know. Um, when they become about, you know, two years old, I transfer them into a bigger pot. And um, usually... Um, they should be fine. I give them just a little bit of um, uh, fertilizer, which feeds them. What kind? Um, what kind of fertilizer? E- um, equal. So everything should be equal, like 10, 10, 10. Gotcha. Um, right. Um, everything should be equal. So they're getting the same amount of um, minerals and, and metals as well in, in the their soil. Um, for... Uh, the lily part of linum family, which I think is the easiest one. And for anybody who wants to start there, please do it. You will be rewarded with that. Um, they love to be sometimes crowded around. They, they have a, a bulb that will continue to build a colony or what I would call a rhizomatic bulb, um, which is amazing. I don't know if you, if, you know, if, if your viewers take the opportunity to just Google that. The image of that is gorgeous. The bulb alone is just amazing. Um, and it forms this colony. Um, you can divide them every three to four years and plant them up again. If you would like to, if you have a site in your garden that has perfect drainage, I would do it. Um, just be um weary of if you have gophers you know you can put them in a gopher basket yeah definitely if you're going to grow something from seed for four years (laughs) put it in a gopher basket people (laughs) exactly and seeds are are very expensive are uh, really really cheap 
expensive. So seeds could be, you know, $2, but for a bulb, if you were to purchase a bulb at a nursery, usually it's about $10, right? So they can get really, really, uh, uh, in French, cher, that's how I would say it. It would be really, really expensive. Very dear, yes. <laughs> Very dear. Um, for the dryland lilies, uh, if you're gardening with those, they not necessarily have a rhizomatic bulb or colony sometimes. Um, they can have a single bulb and they can be be in that um that state for about, you know, a good five years in, in my uh, my experience. Um sometimes they do have the little small little bulbils that are that or bulbils that are on the side of it, mm-hmm. Axel. Um, which is, it's really fun to see those, um, but those are the hardest ones to deal with. Usually you won't find those in the nurseries that often. You might find seeds like of Lilium, uh, rubescence or Lilium, uh, uh which uh, are very gorgeous, but they're really hard to, to master in the garden. Um, I've had opportunity to grow those things and, um, luckily I, I mastered it, but, I take it with a grain of salt because <laughs> sometimes failure is um, failure is it's it's your neighbor. You know, it's a part of the experience with growing lilies um, or anything like uh, in that caliber. So I, I enjoy um, failure sometimes because it teaches me a lot. Like the drainage was really bad or the drainage was too fast, you know, um, you know, it dried out. Um, and I just create this relationship with this garden that is just really interesting. So I'm out there all the time, you know, and there's moments where I'm just like, okay, I'm tired. I really want to, you know, you know, work on something different. And, and I have, I have that opportunity to do that, you know, (laughs) that's good. um, Once the lilies are kind of done, I'm just like, okay, all right, let's go talk to, you know, the irises or. Right. (laughs) It it is like raising children. So it really is. Yeah. Okay. So when you started your partilinum from seed, how long did it take until it actually germinated? Oh, it's, oh my gosh, um, less than, so I planted it in fall, mm-hmm. um, I want to say October, and you would see it, um, one of the first leaf, um, so a monocon, um, in March. Yeah, in March, you would see that in March. And so then, you, okay, sorry. I'm sorry. And then how long does it take until that bulb is mature enough to send up a flowering shoot? Yeah, from that state right there, it would take a good four, four to five years. Yeah. So what I do, I plant a lot, a lot of seeds and at different times too. Okay. So I, I have for this year, there are about three different stages in my garden, um, in my propagation section. So I planted them back in 2016 and 17 and 18. So there's always a constant, you know, turnover, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And why is this important, Jojo? You know, I, I, I love, I love the lilies. You love the lilies. They're pretty colors. <laughs> they're, they're diverse. Why is this kind of passion and then advocacy to, to with one another and 
with the general public who may not yet have this love? Why is this important to, to you and to the broader world, do you think, Jojo? Well, I'm just grateful that I am actually in a day and age or a time where I get to experience them um, and to have a sense of um, of preserving them, not not just the lilies, but the areas around it. Um, that's probably my um, my takeaway from my experience with these lilies mm-hmm. is that I, I really appreciate the colors that they bring, the the smell, even just even the foliage, because believe it or not, like <laughs> the flowers only like last for about like two weeks in my garden, you know, and <laughs> so you'll see, <laughs> that's like another, <laughs> that's, you know, only two weeks. Um, and there's a whole lot of time just looking at the foliage. And I, I re- it took me a while for me to appreciate that. Um, uh, the, um, gosh, it, it's, um, it really opens up a world uh, of plant blindness being taken away from you, I guess, if that's the right word for it, because it does remove um, a layer of, you know, um, just not being aware of it. There's something, there's a gym outside in the forest, and it, it's a gateway for many people as well. Um, that was for me as well. So, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I would encourage people to, um, try them out. If you see them in, you know, the plant sales, don't be afraid. You know, there's so many information we live in, you know, a day and age of information. So there's so many, uh, people who have worked with them and, and seen them and cultivation. So don't be afraid. And also um, take the opportunity to not just be like on your phone, you know, capturing all the photos, but actually be in the presence of of them. You know, each one of them is really different, even the same species, I, I think. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so each one is really interesting and unique. And be aware of all the animals that need that plant the butterflies, all the different types of native bees, um, the spiders that live in, in the flower. So be present, you know, uh, that's what I would take away and most important thing. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been an honor to speak with you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm super happy I got to talk to you. It's amazing and <laughs> I love it. Gardener, educator, husband, and lily lover, Jojo Clark, is a naturalist working on interpretation, public engagement, and education for the Napa County Open Space District, taking him to both state and county parks in coastal Northern California. Join us again next week when we head to our nation's capital. A lot of news is coming out of Washington, D.C. all the time, but we're there for the gardening news and we'll be joined by Kathy Jentz, founder and editor of The Washington Gardener, a magazine and information hub for gardeners of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. 
I'll be speaking at a symposium on women, horticulture, and diversity at the Smithsonian Institute and Smithsonian Gardens on March 18th of this year as part of my national 2020 speaking tour around my book, The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants. So I thought I'd like to get the lay of that gardening place in advance. For more information on this and my other speaking dates and locations, make sure to check out cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. With more than 26 dates around the country this coming year, I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of you in the places you cultivate. I'm at the Sacramento Perennial Plant Society on January 23rd, and then up in Portland, Oregon, for the Hardy Plant Society of Oregon's Winter Lecture on January 26th. So mark your calendars. I want to meet you. Together we grow. May the new year bring you and your garden family the presence and time for the deep and healing love deep and intentional presence that Jojo shared with us today. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week for your New Year's intention-setting botanical pick-me-up, check out Jojo Clark's luminous photos of the lilies he's met and some of which he's grown in his place here in California. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Do you hear Cultivating Place on your public radio station? You should. In the next decade, may you ever enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Like a make beauty.